You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Here on the podcast, we have covered many cases that are unsolved and many cases that seem as though they could get solved if the right information or the right evidence came to light. Today, we're going to climb into the Wayback Machine and head to the 1920s in Germany, though, to take a look at what may be Germany's most well-known unsolved murders. This week's case has six murders, strange circumstances, and absolutely no resolution. It has now been over 100 years since this case took place, so it's obvious that the guilty parties and anyone that knew who the guilty parties were firsthand are no longer with us. What we are left with is plenty of people of interest, plenty of people who believe that they know what happened, and the hope that perhaps one day someone will come forward with evidence that will at least let us know who was behind the horrifying story that wiped out an entire family. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 97 of Gone But Never Forgotten, 100 Years and Not One Charge Laid, The Hinter Kaifek Murders. Germany in the early 1920s was a country that was dealing with a lot. They had been dealing with all of the fallout from the end of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. That entailed a lot of disarmament, the trials of war criminals that took an awfully long time and caused a lot of unrest and uprising in Germany. And of course, as we moved into the 1920s, those things started to fade a little bit into the background, and instead, the focus was on the financial reparations that were put upon Germany to cover civilian damage that was caused during the war. Those reparations totaled 132 billion gold marks, which was $33 billion U.S. at the time and would be the equivalent of $600 billion U.S. dollars today. Another thing that was rampant from the end of World War I and up to 1922, where our story today takes place, was murder. Not just the murders that we're going to talk about, either. This era was filled with political murders, hundreds of them. Coups, invasions, and so much more. It was certainly a time of unrest as the country stared head-on at all of the changes 
and challenges that had been put in place by France, the UK, Russia, the United States, Italy, and Japan at the end of World War I. For the general public, life was incredibly hard. Germany had suffered the loss of over 2 million Germans in the war, including 13% of the German men that were in the country. The war had bled the economy dry, and the Treaty of Versailles, of course, put the final nail in that coffin. Prices in the country began to rise, and inflation set in at alarming rates. There were food shortages all across the country, and of course, soldiers returning from war were finding it nearly impossible to integrate back into society after experiencing the things that they had experienced. To say that Germany was in a state of unrest across every possible level would certainly be a fair assessment. Today we're going to focus on the life and the tragedy that surrounded one family in particular, the Gruber family. They were a family of five that were living under one roof with a maid on a small Bavarian farmstead that was about 70 kilometers to the north of Munich, Germany. The family consisted of 63-year-old patriarch Andreas Gruber, his wife, 72-year-old Kazilia Gruber, their daughter, who had been widowed in 1914, 35-year-old Victoria Gabriel, and Victoria's children with her spouse, Carl Gabriel. The children were 7-year-old Kazilia and 2-year-old Joseph. The family farm at Hinterkaifeck was an older one, having been built over 50 years earlier in 1863. The family, for the most part, was known to keep to themselves. Uh, they lived on the outskirts of town, near the woods, and they were usually just seen when needing food or supplies, when attending church, or when attending school. A part of the reason why they kept to themselves was the fact that there were a lot of rumors surrounding the family for many years. Victoria and her father Andreas, for example, had been accused of incest after an anonymous report was filed against them. Victoria and Andreas would be put to trial and eventually found guilty of incest. Andreas would serve one year in prison, and Victoria served less time but still served time. It's believed it was around one month. Many people even believed that Victoria's son Joseph was the product of the incestuous relationship between father and daughter. Others believed that Joseph was actually the son of Victoria and Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who was the village guide. The Hinterkaifeck farm and the murders certainly haunted the people in the quiet town of Kaifeck, but... The family themselves had actually been living in fear and been haunted by some strange occurrences that led up to the mass murder. On March 31st of 1922, Andreas had told neighbors that he saw footprints that were left in the snow that went around the farm and led to the machine room. Andreas said that he had investigated and tried to discover who made the footprints. Andreas said that the footprints came up from Hexenholes, which was a forest that was located nearby. Interestingly, Hexenhold translates to Witch's Wood. 
If the appearance of those footprints was not enough, perhaps the most ominous part was that there was a set of footprints on to the property, but there was not a matching set of footprints leaving the property. Thus, there was absolutely no proof that whoever had arrived on his farm had ever left. Earlier in the month, Andreas had also found a newspaper on his property that came from Munich, and nobody that lived in Kaifek was subscribed to that newspaper, so there was no explanation as to how it got onto his property. All of that was certainly unnerving for Andreas, and he started to ask around to see if any neighbors had been experiencing anything strange or they had seen anyone lurking around the area. As always seems to be the case in situations like this one, of course nobody else was experiencing anything like Andreas was. The things that were happening on the homestead at the end of March were not the first things that were strange around the farm, though. The family had a previous maid named Crescent's Rager, who had quit in the fall of 1921 because she feared that the house was haunted. It was said that Crescent's had heard strange noises coming from the attic of the home. Crescent's also told police that the attic door would open on its own every night at midnight. She said that she could not live at the farm any longer because she was too afraid. Just days before the murders, the family also heard heavy footsteps coming from the attic, and the house was searched thoroughly, but they didn't find anyone or anything that explained the noises that they were hearing. Strangely, even though Andreas had told people about the occurrences on the farm, he refused help from his neighbors and also never went to the police in any way to report the things that were going on. On March 31st, the family would have a new maid, Maria Baumgartner, arrive at the farm nearly six months after Crescent's had left. Maria was brought to the farm by her sister, who left again after Maria was settled. It's believed that Maria's sister was likely the last person to see any member of the family or her sister alive. On April 1st, Hans Shirovsky and Eduard Shirovsky, who were coffee salesmen, arrived at the farm because they were supposed to take an order from the family. However, they knocked and knocked and nobody came to the door. They went to a window after that and knocked on the window as well, and they walked around the yard of the property and found nobody, and finally left. They said that the door to the machine house was open and said that they decided to leave. It was also noted that the family did not attend church that week, and also the older daughter, the younger, Kazelia, was not at school, and no reason was given. An assembler, a man by the name of Albert Hoffner, went to the farm on April 4th as he was sent to repair an engine. He said that while he was there, he did not see the family and that he had heard nothing from the farm except for the sounds of animals and the dog that was inside of the barn. He said that after waiting around to see if someone would show up for about an hour, he decided to just go to work and he fixed the engine which took him approximately four and a half hours to do, and then he left. 
Albert said that when he arrived at the farm, the barn doors were locked shut, and he could hear the dog barking inside of the barn. And then when he left, to his surprise, the barn door was open, and the dog was tied up outside of the barn. When Albert ran into Lorenz Schlittenbauer in town, he told Lorenz about the weird happenings and the strange state of silence at the farm. And then around 3.30 p.m., Lorenz would send his son Johann and his stepson Joseph over to Hinterkaifeck to see if they could find any members of the Gruber family to find out what was going on. The boys, though, would return home and say that they didn't see anyone or anything going on at the farm. Lorenz would then go to the farm himself with two other neighbors, Michael Pohl and Jakob Siegel. When the three men went to the farm, they found that every door to the house was locked, and it appeared that nobody was around at all. The men then entered the barn, seemingly being the first people to do so, and that is when they would find the bodies of Andreas Gruber, his wife Cazilia, his daughter Victoria, and his granddaughter Cazilia. Soon after, as they entered the home, they would find Maria Baumgartner, the new maid, and young two-year-old Joseph, who was killed in his bassinet. Obviously, at that point, that is when the police were contacted and Inspector Georges Reingruber from the Munich Police Department would arrive a few hours later and his department would head to the scene and be in charge of collecting information and evidence. The problem, however, was that George had to travel from Munich to Kaifeck and in that time, word spread quickly around the town about the murders, and that meant that on top of whatever the murderers had done, and on top of Lorenz moving the bodies, which we'll talk more about later, there were a lot of people from town that came to the scene of the crime and walked through the home, the yard, and the barn before the scene could be sealed. Unfortunately, Right from the get-go, things were not easy. The crime scenes had been completely tampered with by the murderer or murderers, Lorenz, and countless townsfolk. And on top of that, it was deemed that townsfolk had even cooked and eaten food while waiting to see what would happen at Hinterkaifeck when the police arrived. Autopsies would be done the following day in the barn by court physician Johann Baptiste O'Muller, and it was established that the family had been killed using a mattock, which is an agricultural tool that's shaped very similarly to a pickaxe. The weapon was not found at the scene, however, at this time. Sadly, the evidence showed also that young Cazelia had been alive for likely several hours after she and her family were assaulted and the rest of them were murdered. This was determined because there were tufts of hair that had been pulled right out of her scalp in her hands. It was believed that she likely pulled her own hair out as a reaction to shock to everything that happened and of course the pain from the abuse and assault that she had received. At first, investigators believed that the motive behind the killings had to be robbery because they could not determine what else could be behind such brutal killings and the murder of everyone that was inside of the home and 
on the farmstead. Because of that, the investigators would start to talk to traveling salesmen, vagrants, and people that were from nearby villages because they believed that it wouldn't be someone that was from Kaifek. However, as they investigated more and more at the house, they realized that this was not a case of robbery. There was a large amount of money left in the house that was not locked away or hidden at all. It also became abundantly clear that likely the people or person who had moved the bodies and the people that had seemingly lived at the farm for days were one and the same. It became clear that it was the killers or killer that had stayed on the farm for days and they had apparently fed the cattle. They had also eaten the entire supply of bread that the family had on hand and they had even cut meat that they had found in the pantry. Looking at everything that was in front of them, investigators seemed to only know one thing. Six people had been murdered in cold blood. Over time, a rough timeline was put together using facts that came up along the way. Of course, investigators found out that Maria's first day was March 31st, so as such they knew that whatever had happened at the farm had happened after her sister left on that day. The mailman confirmed in an interview that the mail at the farm had not been touched since Saturday morning, which in turn told investigators that the Grubers were likely killed on the night of March 31st. They believed that the killer, or killers, had led the family down to the barn somehow, one by one, and struck them in the head when they arrived with the mattock. Victoria and her mom also did show signs that they had been choked as well, leading investigators to believe that perhaps they had been strangled to death and then hit with the mattock to ensure that they were dead. All four victims in the barn had been given multiple hits to the head and Victoria had been struck at least nine times. Investigators then believed that the guilty party or parties went into the home and killed Maria in her room and then killed young Joseph, who was only hit once, killing him instantly where he slept in his bassinet. There was all kinds of theories in this case, and over the years there have been at least 100 different people who were looked at as people of interest within the case. An artisan who was passing by the home the day after it's believed the murders took place said that he noticed that the oven was in use and there was smoke coming out of the chimney. He said that he also had seen a person outside of the home who had a lantern and that they had blinded him with the lantern, causing him to leave quickly. Also on April 1st, around 3 a.m., the town butcher, Simon Ryblander, said that he had seen two people at the edge of the forest on his way home and that they had turned around so that he could not see their faces as he approached. After he heard about the murders, he wondered if perhaps those people may have been involved. As I mentioned, there were many people of interest in this case, and I'm going to share a few of those with you here to give you an idea of the people that were considered more than others. As mentioned, the police thought at first that the murders were committed as a part of a robbery. 
When they spoke with Crescents, the former maid, she said that a man named Joseph Thaler had come to the farm about a year before the murders. Joseph and his brother were known in the area as thieves, and they had already committed multiple burglaries by this point in time. One night, Joseph had come and knocked on Crescent's window, and he had alluded to her that he wanted to rob the farm, even asking her where different members of the family slept. There was also a history between Joseph and his brother and Andreas, because of a couple years before the murders, the brothers had reportedly hidden the family barn, and Andreas had forced them to leave by firing a rifle in their direction to scare them off. When it was discovered that the murders were not committed as a part of theft, however, it was viewed as much less likely that it was the Thaler brothers because their forte and their M.O. was theft more than anything else. Adolf and Anton Gump were also two brothers that were suspected from very early on in this case, as early as April 9th, 1922. There were rumors that Adolf and Victoria were actually in a relationship together, but there was never any evidence of that or evidence that placed him at the scene. The catch was, though, that Adolf actually was never located and was never questioned regarding the case, and he passed away in World War II in 1944. In 1951, however, their sister claimed on her deathbed that Adolf and Anton had both been the people behind all six murders. Anton Gump would be taken into custody, but... After a short period of time in custody, the case would be dropped again because there was no evidence to tie him to the murders, and by then there had already been 32 years that had passed by. Interestingly, another suspect was Carl Gabriel. Carl was the believed-to-be-dead husband of Victoria. He was believed to have been killed in France in December of 1914 as he took part in World War I. His body, however, had actually never been found. People began to believe that perhaps Carl had somehow found his way back to the farm where his wife and daughter were, and he soon discovered that Victoria had a child with someone else. In this scenario and rumor, it was believed that Carl found out that Victoria had moved on, or found out about the incestuous relationship between Andreas and Victoria, and then Carl had taken out his anger on the entire family. It was really such a long shot of a theory, and one that didn't make a lot of sense, of course, to most people. More like grasping at straws because there seem to be no resolutions coming. I think that we have all seen it before. People start to panic when there is a catastrophic crime like this one, and rightfully so. But when suspects are not named or apprehended, people tend to try and find explanations that can make some semblance of sense and that explains away any risk for the general public at large. Police, of course, did look into this line of thinking to attempt to prove or disprove that it was even a possibility, and in the end, they did speak with soldiers that were with Carl when he died in the war. 
Multiple soldiers said that they witnessed him lying lifeless after they were attacked in France. It was proven about as clearly as it could be that Carl could not have been the person that committed these murders, but to this day his name still comes up as a suspect. Based on everything that I've found on this case, I find myself believing, much like seemingly most people, that of all the names that have really ever been floated as a person of interest, Lorenz Schlittenbauer comes to be the person who evidence seems to point at as being a part of these horrendous crimes. First and foremost, the fact that Lorenz admitted to touching and moving bodies and then that he ran into the house alone ahead of the other two men is damning. Even in the 1920s, it was common knowledge that if you came across a body and they would have clearly been dead after four days, you do not touch the body or anything else at the scene. It was also said by people that saw Lorenz after he discovered the bodies that he didn't seem shaken, and he didn't seem disgusted at finding the bloody and mutilated bodies of people that he at least knew and perhaps had way more of a relationship with. Lorenz said in the end that he touched the bodies and moved the bodies because he was looking for his son, confirming what many believed. The problem was that Lorenz had a long history of denying that he was Joseph's father, and the only time that he really ever owned up to it was when he was being questioned regarding these murders. Police would even discover that Victoria had been trying not long before her death to get the courts to mandate alimony payments from Lorenz to Victoria. There was even a rumor that Victoria had taken off into the forest after a terrible fight with Lorenz the night before or the same day that the murders took place and that that argument was regarding those payments. On the flip side of all of that, though, many people hypothesized over the years that he may have only said that he was the father of Joseph because he believed that there was some kind of inheritance that may come his way if he was related. Lorenz, until his death, though, in 1941, did vehemently defend himself, and he even fought accusations in court and sued people successfully for slander. The police obviously did not have the evidence that was needed to arrest, charge, or see anything through with Lorenz, just like the multitude of other people that were looked into within this case. The case was officially closed and unsolved in 1955 because the belief was that there would never be any charges laid and most of the people who were of interest had already passed on as well. Still, this case remains in the minds of people all over the world, and there is always the hope that even if nobody will pay for the crime, perhaps we can get it some closure if some new evidence or a confession of some kind ever came forward. In 2007, a group of students at a police academy in Germany actually looked deeply into this crime, and they used modern-day forensics as in any way that they could. The academy students, of course, explained that there was absolutely no way that they could solve a case that was 85 years old definitively. 
However, they did say that after looking at all of the evidence that was compiled over the years, that they were able to name a prime suspect in this case. Out of respect of the descendants of that person, however, they never released that name to the public. On April 1st, 1922, the lives of six people were taken in the night in a brutal and tragic fashion, including two very young and innocent children. Hop on over to social media and let me know what you think about this case. Had you heard of it before? Who do you think is the main suspect? What do you think? Aside from that, there's nothing left to do but to bid you adieu for another episode of GBNF. Please come back next week, and in the meantime, you guessed it, be better.